Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. I've talked a bit about day trading and day traders here on YouTube, and it's worth taking a bit of a look at the history of retail day trading, which goes back to the late 1980s, when new technologies allowed a small group of smart and aggressive traders to take on Wall Street and to win. We'll talk about what market inefficiencies the early day traders were exploiting, what became of them, and if there are any lessons applicable to today's markets. Scalping and short-term trading has been around as long as markets have existed. These strategies were used usually by floor traders with the lowest transaction costs. And a lot of these trades involved getting in front of big orders coming in from large institutional clients. A lot of these trades get pretty close to being considered front-running. In the late 1980s and most of the 1990s, a group of traders armed with new technology worked out that if they were faster than the Wall Street market makers, they could generate significant profits from short-term trading. When this new breed of day trader appeared, nearly all transactions in stocks in the United States went through human middlemen manually trading. On the Nasdaq exchange, these people were known as market makers or dealers, and on the New York Stock Exchange, they were called specialists. In exchange for the service of standing ready to buy and sell a given stock at all times, these middlemen tacked on a fee that's called the spread, which was the difference between the price that they paid when they bought and what they received when they sold a stock back to investors. Market makers were at the heart of the money flow, picking off dimes and quarters that added up to billions of dollars per year. Stock prices back then were quoted in prices of one-eighth of a dollar, not in pennies like they are today. This convention made spreads artificially wide, handing outside spreads to market makers and specialists. The bid-ask spread was often a quarter of a dollar, sometimes more. During times of market stress, market makers could be difficult or impossible to get on the phone, like during the 1987 crash. This once again was to the benefit of the market makers. After the 1987 crash, a trader at a small penny stock brokerage company in New York called Daytech Securities noticed a few loopholes in the Nasdaq system that processed small trades for retail investors. The system was called SOS, or the Small Orders Execution System, and it allowed brokers for small investors to place orders directly with market makers through a computer system. This system was barely used as most market makers traded over the phone or used SelectNet, a computer system where they could display prices that they were willing to trade at on the screen. Now, while SelectNet was run on a computer system, it didn't actually implement the trade. You'd place a trade through a little window on your terminal and it worked kind of like a a very basic sort of instant messaging system. The market makers would then receive that message and execute the trades manually. So that's how it worked back then. 
after the 1987 crash, Nasdaq got just a ton of bad press because market makers had refused to answer their phones, leaving small investors hung out to dry as the market makers protected their own accounts. They failed to make consistent ready markets for customers, really just to save their own skins. Nasdaq made SOs mandatory after that for market makers. They were now required to stand ready at all times while the market was open to electronically trade up to a thousand shares on SOs for the stocks that they made markets in. This was fully electronically executed and couldn't be ignored like a ringing telephone or even just given less priority than, we'll say, a trade from a big institutional customer. And that would have been very much the case leading up to that. The new rule went live in 1988, and by automating SOs, Nasdaq unwittingly unlocked a backdoor into the market maker's private club. The only thing a broker needed then to trade on SOS was a NASDAQ level 2 terminal. Popular stocks at the time often had a dozen or more market makers competing to buy and sell them. Market makers would enter the quotes by hand on their level 2 workstations and then move them up or down as necessary. Those prices could be seen by all NASDAQ level 2 traders and they could be traded based upon using SOs for up to a thousand shares. Some market makers were faster than others at updating their prices, and when the market started to move, some market makers could be caught napping. In practice, if you called them up the way it would have worked in the old day, they would have, of course, moved their price up. But now on SOs, you might find that you have a narrow time window to simply execute a thousand shares electronically at the stale price. Now, it's worth noting that Nasdaq had stipulated that licensed broker-dealers could not use the system to trade on their own behalf. They could only use it to execute orders for clients. Some of the early day traders were ex-floor traders who were no longer licensed as brokers, and they were able to use this system to trade. Now, at Daytech, they traded on their own behalf using nominee accounts that they would give some of the profits to in exchange for a agreeing that it was a customer order. Nasdaq were not at all happy when the new day traders at Daytech started doing this, and they did their best to try and stop it. The market makers referred to these traders as the Soze Bandits, and the battle between these new day traders and Nasdaq would last for a decade or more. Daytech day traders were a lot like the market makers, but instead of making money off of regular investors, they made money by trying to pick off market makers. Market makers and the old guard at NASDAQ obviously hated them. Market makers typically handled 20 or 30 stocks at a time, while the day traders at Daytech could just focus in on a few stocks, maybe just one or two, and just wait for the market maker to make a mistake and then pick them off over and over again. Daytech traders would look for stocks with overnight news that were likely to move sharply in the morning, and then they would hunt for a dealer who was asleep at the wheel. Possibly, we'll say, someone in late to the office or who hadn't updated their quote from the previous day's session. Jeff Citron, one of the Daytech traders, is storied to have bought a thousand lots of shares repeatedly from one dealer, flipping them in the market instantly for a $2 profit, and 
And he did this 90 times apparently one morning before the market maker saw what was happening and changed their quote. This, as you can calculate it, amounted to a gain of over $150,000 in minutes once trading costs and everything else had been taken into account. Once the market maker caught on and updated their quote, then Jeff apparently took a quick break from the office, returning a little while later with a brand new Mercedes 500 SL. He then got back to work. There are other stories of an angry market maker who stormed into the Daytech trading floor in a fury, launching himself at one of the traders who he felt had victimized him, uh, ending up getting stabbed with a letter opener and the police were called. According to Scott Patterson's book, Dark Pools, another trader at Daytech once noticed that Intel was trading at $111. He figured that a market maker might not notice if he added in an extra digit. His theory was that the market makers just focus on the last two digits of the stock price because they're the ones that are most likely to change. So he offered to sell a thousand Intel shares at 1,111 and a Water. A market maker apparently hit him, earning the day trader a quick $1 million profit. That trade was, of course, disallowed by the exchange. It was written off as a fat finger error, but at least for a minute or two, he had made a million bucks in a few seconds. Josh Levine, a programmer at Daytech who later went on to build the island ECN and is probably one of the most important people in the history of electronic trading, designed a computer trading app for the SOS bandits that was called The Watcher. And it was able to reach into the clunky Nasdaq Level 2 workstation and allow traders to place orders way, way faster than using the Nasdaq software, um, using a keyboard shortcut. Another feature of the watcher was that it allowed multiple traders to trade using just one level two workstation. And these level two workstations were very expensive at the time. Another trick that the Daytech traders worked out was that a trade could be entered later into the trading system and still get priority if the order was bidding to buy at a higher limit price or offering to sell at a lower limit price than a competing trade that had been entered earlier by someone else. In effect, Nasdaq system prioritized price over time. Just because you put in a higher buy price did not mean that you had to pay that higher buy price. In practice, you just paid the price that was showing on the so screen, but you got to leapfrog in front of other traders. The result of this discovery was coded up in what was called the monster key at the time in the Watcher trading app. And this was one of the original trading algos. And it's an idea that would eventually manifest itself within high frequency trading algos that you see in today's markets. This was the dawn of retail day trading, a term which became a household name by the late 1990s, in particular during the dot-com boom of 1999. This style of trading changed the way that Wall Street worked. It pushed it towards decimalization, electronic trading, replacing human manual market making. It brought about ECNs, dark pools, and eventually high-frequency trading. At the time, offices were opened all over the United States. 
United States with NASDAQ level two workstations filled with hundreds of traders using the watcher trading software, the monster button and all of the other execution tricks that these guys worked out. The initial approach taken by the SOS bandits exploited a clear inefficiency in how stocks traded at the time, allowing the earliest traders to become incredibly rich very quickly. In addition to these traders, there were way more people who called themselves day traders, but didn't really have any edge at all in the market. So they did have a, you know, a short term holding period, but they would essentially just trade in huge size based on gut instinct. And many of them uh, bankrupted themselves in weeks or months. And that is something that we unfortunately still see in today's markets. There's an old poker saying that if you can't spot the sucker at the table, then you are the sucker. If you're an active trader and you don't clearly understand what market inefficiency you're exploiting in order to generate your profits, there's a very good chance that your trading is random and that any profits are temporary and simply the result of good luck. There are strategies that can be easily backtested, such as buying the market, we'll say, at the open and exiting with either a small, let's say, five-point profit or exiting at the close if that five-point profit doesn't occur. If you backtest a strategy like that, you might find that it'll have a win rate as high as 90%, but the profit expectation is negative. It, it generates a loss. And the reason for this is because in the 10 times out of 100 that you do lose, money, you lose way more money than the profits you made in your winning trades. And often there's a lot of people that are new to trading and they do trades like that and they think they have an amazing win rate and then all of a sudden they get hammered. So you're probably wondering what eventually did happen to the Soze bandits. Well, they did end up in trouble with the law. I'll link to the results of the SEC case in the description of the video below if you want to read the whole case file. But essentially, they ended up being fined over $70 million and some were banned from the securities industry. But they did end up being quite wealthy at the very end anyhow. As I mentioned earlier, until mid 2000 one NASD rules restricted the use of the SOS system, prohibiting broker dealers from using SOS to trade for their own accounts. According to the SEC complaint, the Daytech traders used the SOS system to execute millions of unlawful proprietary trades, generating illegal profits. The complaint further alleges that these defendants hid their fraudulent use of the SOS system from regulators by allocating the trades to dozens of nominee accounts, creating fictitious books and records, and filing false reports with the Commission. In addition to their day trading profits, the Daytech team led the change from the old-fashioned market-making system to fully electronic trading. They started the Island ECN, which was sold to Instanet in 1997 and later to Nasdaq for just under a billion dollars. They also started Daytech Online, one of the early online brokerages, which was bought by Ameritrade for $1.3 billion in stock. 
Jeffrey Citroen, who I mentioned earlier on, he had nipped out of the office to buy the new Mercedes. He ended up being banned from the securities industry, but he wasted no time afterwards and went on to found Vonage, the voiceover internet protocol company, where he remains the chairman today. And Vonage has a market cap of $2.6 billion. So things worked out for these guys essentially because they were smart guys. The poker player Amarillo Slim Preston is famous for the quote, you can shear a sheep a hundred times, but you can skin it only once. Nasdaq could not have continued on the way it was, losing money to day traders. Stocks moved from trading in eights to decimalization in 2001, largely pushed there by the island ECN. Market making is now fully electronic and the opportunities exploited by the SOS bandits have disappeared. Both the market makers and the bandits have been replaced by high-frequency traders who have intricate knowledge of market microstructure and special order types and algos, and they're able to capture these quasi-arbitrages, and they do battle at light speed in today's markets. Smart traders are always searching for new market opportunities, but the people who call themselves day traders today are just a very different group than the early day traders of the 1990s. There's something Darwinian about the markets where both predator and prey are constantly evolving. Initially, this style of trading was very profitable, but like most outsized market opportunities, it just couldn't stay that way forever. And it was quickly closed by a mixture of regulation, competition, and technology. The people who discovered this opportunity made the most of it while they could. The Nasdaq market makers, of course, had to adapt and change. Uh, they couldn't do business the way they were. They needed to do something to stem losses. If you'd like to read more about this, I'll put some book recommendations in the description of the video below. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.